A reading from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Hear, O Lord. 
Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. A reading from the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. gospel lesson this morning is from Mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 13. intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them 
Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are all here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And as they were coming down off the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever he, whatever they pleased, as it is written. This is the Gospel of the Lord. We're continuing our trip through Mark, and it matched up very nicely with the, uh, the appointed readings for today, the Feast of the Transfiguration. Now, sometimes in churches, this is actually celebrated in August, although there's other church traditions that have it celebrated the week before Lent begins, kind of to, to cap off this season of Epiphany, sort of like Christ the King Sunday caps off ordinary time right before the penitential season of Advent. So we get this feast of celebration as we enter into to a Lent time. In the, in the transfiguration narrative, basically what we're seeing is God's affirmation of what Peter said the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. And this is basically God answering that and affirming that. We see Jesus. We see Jesus takes his disciples up onto a mountain. And his, all of a sudden, his clothes are blindingly white, as no, as, as no one on earth could ever make them. And with him are Moses and Elijah. Think of it this way. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, with Jesus. It's a callback to something that both of those two guys had gone through themselves. In Exodus 19, Moses, the one to whom God would give his law to give to his people. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and is surrounded by the presence of the Lord. Elijah in 1 Kings 19, great prophet of the Lord. He's God's mouthpiece to a faithless nation. He defeats the false prophets of Baal and he runs away to Mount Horeb, the Mount of the Lord. He goes up on the mountain and he is surrounded by the presence of the Lord. And the same thing happens here to Jesus' disciples. They go up on the mountain, they're with Jesus, and suddenly there's a, a transfiguration. And they're suddenly cognizant that they're in the presence of the very living God. And so we see here Jesus being shown, not told, but being shown as the, the fulfillment, the, culmin the culmination, the, the telos of the law and the prophets. It's kind of like, it reminded me this week of, of what Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. He says, you know, you, sh you search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it's me that they bear witness about. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so in the midst of a faithless nation, Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, these promises that God has made to his people so long ago. And in the midst of this cloud, in the midst of this blinding white display of Jesus and these two guys who are dead and yet somehow there, all three of them having a conversation, we get Peter. And it's yet another instance that I'm so, so, so glad that Peter is around and that his words are recorded in the Gospels. Because it makes me, it makes me feel like I have a friend. It makes me feel like somebody might get me when I get to meet him someday. Someone who just says the dumbest thing at the worst time. Can't tell you the number of times where after a conversation with somebody, I go, oh boy, I shouldn't have said that. And that's Peter throughout the Gospels. And God bless him for it. I'm so glad that he's there as, a, as an example for us. And so Peter presented with this shining image of Christ in his resplendent glory. He says, uh, hey, Jesus, let's build three shelters, one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you. And then I love it because it just the, the text then comments on it and it says he, he didn't know what to say. He, he didn't know because they were terrified. I don't know if I'd know what to say either when presented with that blinding vision of pure glory. I'd probably just blurt something out off the top of my head like, like Peter did. I mean, think about it. You're standing in the very presence of the Lord. You're standing on top of a mountain with a cloud swirling around you and a voice coming out saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And I can understand why Peter says what he says because what he's saying is, hey, let's keep this going. Let's, let's make some shelters. Let's, let's camp out here. Let's be here in this moment of glory. And what Peter says is, let's build three tents. And it's the exact same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's the exact same word that's used in the Old Testament for the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Let's build three of these, these portable shelters. But that idea of the tent and the tabernacle is one that has been with Israel for so long. It's the, the mobile dwelling place of the presence of God in physical form among and with his people. It's the same word that we hear in John 1.14. When John says that, that the word, God the Son, the word became flesh and dwelt among us or actually tented among us or tabernacled among us. The movable presence of God in physical form among and with his people. So if you read it with that, with that idea in mind, it takes on an even deeper meaning because it's clear that Jesus has no need for a tent he has no need for a shelter, for a tabernacle. I mean, technically Moses and Elijah don't either because either they're still dead or they're showing up in their resurrected bodies. And in either case, they don't need to be sheltered from anything. And the text is absolutely not clear on how it is that they are seeing Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. But the main point, I think, here is Jesus because then Moses and Elijah go away and Jesus is left by himself, and Jesus has no need for a tent because he is the tent. He is the tabernacle. 
the movable presence of God in physical form among and with his people. And so Peter wants to keep this going, but God actually has a different idea. Peter Peter wants the mountaintop experience to continue, but if this mountaintop experience is actually kind of a, a, a perfection of what happened to Moses and Elijah, then Peter would know that the point of Jesus, of the point of God bringing Moses and Elijah to the mountaintop wasn't to keep them there in a static place of glory. It was to drive them forward. And so these actual mountaintop experiences that we see in Moses and Elijah and then with Jesus, these are actually missional, these revelations. Because we see that Moses went up on the mountain in Exodus 19, thick cloud in the very presence of God. Why did he go up there? So that he could go back down. So that he could go back down the mountain and bring God's law to God's people. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah goes up the mountain. We just heard it read. He's running away in self-pity and fear. Up he goes on the mountain in a fierce storm and a howling wind and a still small voice of God. Why? So that he could feel surrounded and protected and loved by God? Yes, but also so that he could go back down the mountain. So that he could see these 7,000 priests that God had set aside from all of faithless Israel. And so that he could find the next guy in the chain of prophets who was going to become God's mouthpiece to his faithless nation. Same thing here. Fortunately, God himself provides the evidence for this. Verse 7 of chapter 9. A cloud appeared and overshadowed him, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So we see God clearly affirming Peter's confession that he made in the last chapter. Peter said, you are, you are the Messiah. And God is saying, this is my son. And this is not a statement about Christ's divinity. This is not saying that Jesus is also God incarnate. This is actually a statement of kingship. In the Old Testament, we see several references to the idea of the son of God. But it's always about a person or people. It's not about divinity. It's about the relationship that God wants with his creation. Israel itself, God's chosen nation, is referred to as my firstborn son. And God says of King David several times, I will be to him as a father, and he will be to me as a son. So this is kingdom language, God basically affirming their recognizing Jesus as king. And then there is a clear and unmistakable command that God gives to the disciples and that he also gives to anyone who reads this. Listen to him. It's the call on the disciples' lives. It's the call for all of our lives. Listen to Jesus. So what does Jesus say? We just need to look back a little bit in the nine chapters that we've covered in Mark. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. Jesus says to his followers, it is I, do not be afraid. But he also says, out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness and deceit. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will keep it. And then the most recent thing that he said, Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested and convicted and killed. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. He has given his disciples, and they didn't believe it yet. Sometimes it takes people a long time to believe this. He was giving his disciples a picture of what the journey of King Jesus was going to be, of what the real, of what the real path that the Messiah was going to trod is. And so as we celebrate this day, as we think about the transfiguration, about Jesus being shown in all of his glory in a way that is only seen in the book of Revelation, when, when Jesus is presented with, um, with piercing, blinding eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and, and white robes that are like the sun. That's a little glimpse of what we get here. And so as we think about this passage, we see further revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, this promised Savior, King, this promised warrior servant. Part of our takeaway from this, I think, is, is just doxology. It's just praise. I mean, that's what this passage is designed to do. Praising God and being awed by his glory. That, that the creator of the universe would actually become a person. That the God who, make ev- who made everything would become just like us in order to save us. The enormity of that statement that God would become like us in order to save us. The enormity of that statement is exactly why we enter into a period like Lent this coming week. When, when we take a season of the year to really enter into a time of considering how hopeless our life is apart from Christ. And when we do that, how much sweeter then is the celebration of his victory over sin and death at the Easter resurrection. And so part of Part of our takeaway from a passage like this is just praising God. But the other part is exactly what God tells us. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to everything that he says. Don't cherry pick the parts that agree with your worldview and push the other parts off to the side. It is so easy to do. Listen to my son. You and I will probably never experience anything in our lives this side of glory, as dramatic as that moment that Peter, James, and John did. But each and every one of us can listen to Jesus. We can hear his words that he said to the disciples, to the crowds, to the Pharisees. We can hear the warning that he gave to unbelievers. We can hear the comfort that he gives to the downtrodden. We can hear the grace that he gives to people who were so sinful that they couldn't even be considered part of polite society. I think I want to end with this. N.T. Wright said it best when summarizing this passage on on God's command and on kind of Peter's fumbling words and what this all means for us. Wright says that as we learn more and more to listen to Jesus, even if sometimes we get scared and say all the wrong things, we may find that his glory creeps up on us unawares, strengthening us as it did the disciples for the road ahead that God has for us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this passage that shows your glory and reminds us of your mission for our lives. We pray that we would be able to hold both of those things true at the same time. 
that basking in the glory of who you are and what you have done, that we would be strengthened and equipped for the road ahead that you have for us. That moments like this of seeing who Jesus really is in his power and majesty would remind us that in Psalm 27, when it says that we want to dwell in the house of the Lord, that he is the house of the Lord. And when we know that we will see the house of the Lord in in the land of the living, that that's Jesus. And we know that we will be with him and we know that we will get to, we know that he will be our tabernacle forever. God, remind us of that this week as we enter into this season of, of quiet contemplation and penitent. Be with us, Lord. Amen.